Amen. We are here to and outstanding, outstanding. We are. Um, it's our privilege to have Dr. Dan Powers as the preacher of the evening. It's our privilege to share chapel space with each other and allow God to work in our lives. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in just a moment, I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 with you. It's a passage that actually talks about God's amazing love and how it causes us to follow after Him. Have you ever really felt compelled to do something before? You had a compulsion and you were just convinced that you needed to do something. Now I'm sure that most of us have this feeling, but have you ever acted upon a compulsion I'm talking to you about and then it turned out completely different than what you'd anticipated? I think most of us have gone through this experience before. I've already shared this story with some of you, but I will never forget the Christmas that I had in 1983. I was single, I was 23 years old, and I was enrolled in my first year at Nazarene Theological Seminary. My oldest brother Rick and his wife Debbie lived in Kansas City at the same time, and when December rolled around, then we all decided that we wanted to go back to California to celebrate Christmas with my parents. My brother and his wife were planning on spending several weeks in California, and so they were planning on staying a bit longer. I was actually planning on taking a short term at the beginning of January at NTS, and so I decided I would fly to Kansas City so I could get back flying back um, quicker. They, in contrast, were going to drive the 1,800 miles then across the United States to California. Well, this is where my compulsion comes in. My brother and his wife at that time had a little baby girl by the name of Pamela. She was born in April of 1983, and so she was only about seven and a half months old at the time. I was rather concerned about my brother and his wife making this 1,800-mile trip in the dead of winter with my little seven-month-old niece. And so I got this great idea that I was certain was divinely inspired. I decided that I would take my seven-month-old niece with me on the airplane. Now my flight was only scheduled to last five hours with one little stopover in Dallas along the way. When I arrived in California, my mother, Pamela's grandmother, could take over. And so the more I thought about this, the more I was sure that this is the right thing to do. I was simply compelled to do this. It was the right thing. Well, when the day of the flight came, then my sister-in-law, Debbie, assured me that she had taken every possible precaution to make sure that no accidents would happen. Now, when I say that my sister-in-law was concerned about an accident happening in the airplane, let me assure you that we were not worrying about an accident of the plane in the air happening. We were worrying about a much greater accident. I'm talking about an accident in the diaper of my little niece. Now, I'd had quite a bit of experience of babysitting Pamela in the months since she was born. One of her favorite people on earth was her Uncle Danny, and you can't blame her for that, right? Um, <laughs> And I'd done lots of things with and for Pamela, but one thing I'd never done is I'd never taken care of the big business in her diaper. <laughs> and so my sister-in-law, Debbie, took a whole barrage of precautions to make sure that Pamela would not do that on the airplane. 
Um, I hope I'm explaining myself clearly enough without becoming too graphic. Um, well, the day of the flight finally came, and it was a beautiful day for flying. I was sitting very happily and satisfied in my seat next to my window on the airplane. Pamela was playing contentedly on the floor of the airplane between my feet, and I was sure that this was exactly the way God intended things to happen. Well, we were about 25 minutes into the flight when this most intriguing aroma <laughs> began to force its way into my happy thoughts. Well, I looked at Pamela, and she was still playing and bouncing contentedly at my feet. And so it certainly couldn't be from her. Well, about three minutes later, I decided I could not ignore this fascinating smell any longer. And so I carefully picked up my niece and placed her on my lap. But you have to remember, I was 23 years old, I was single, and I had a problem. How do you know for sure that a baby has done it in her diaper? Well, I'm now the father of four kids, and so I could probably write a dissertation now upon the safe ways of checking um, whether a child has done it in their diaper or not. But as a 23-year-old single guy sitting on that airplane, there seemed to be only one way for me to know for sure. And so I did what I thought was best. I stuck my finger down into her diaper. Well, what in the world do you do when you're sitting in the middle of an airplane and you have baby doo-doo all over your finger? Now, this was a new experience for me. You have to realize this. And so my mind quickly scanned all the possibilities. Um, I couldn't wipe it on my pants. Um, I couldn't wipe it on the bottom of my shoe. I couldn't wipe it on my sock. I even thought about wiping it underneath my seat, but I was sitting there, so I didn't want to do that. So what do you do? Well, after about 20 seconds of panicky deliberation, and believe me, those were the longest and smelliest 20 seconds of my life, then I finally decided there's only one thing and one place I could put my finger. I needed to put it back where I found it. And so I quickly stuck my finger in her diaper and pulled it out. Um, when I was finished, my finger didn't smell so good, but it did look at least relatively clean. Well, this was only the beginning of a nightmare flight that I will never forget. I missed my connecting flight in Dallas. The airport in Dallas got fogged in so that all the other flights were delayed. My flight was not only supposed to last, no, my flight was only supposed to last five hours. It ended up lasting a little bit over 12 hours before I finally made it to California. And my sweet little niece did the, biz, the big business not just one time, but four different times by the time I got there. I remember telling my mother when I got off the airplane, Mom, I'll never have kids, here. Um, but what about that compelled feeling that I had when I started to do what I knew that I had to do? I mean, this whole thing turned out to be a lot harder and a lot smellier um, than I had ever anticipated. Was that feeling of compulsion wrong? Did I misunderstand what I thought that God was leading me to do? What does it really mean to be compelled to do something? Well, if you have your Bibles, then I'd like to read a short passage with you from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read from the Lord's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. 
Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who, but for him who died for them and was raised again. May the Lord add his blessing to this word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I'd ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through this word so we can understand what it truly means to be compelled by the love of Christ. Father, give us the Holy Spirit not only to hear your word, but also act upon it as well. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. When I read this passage, I'm especially captured by the meaning of the word compel that we read in verse 14. The NIV, as I've just read, translates this verse by saying, For Christ's love compels us. But what does this word really mean? When you start looking at different translations of this same verse, you'll quickly find that the different translations of the Bible really do not agree in their translation of this word. The King James Version says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The NASB says, For the love of Christ controls us. The Rhymes New Testament says, For the charity of Christ presseth us. The New American Bible says, The love of Christ impels us. And the New Revised Standard Version says, the love of Christ urges us on. I hardly know what most of these words mean. So how can I understand what Paul is really trying to say here? What does Paul mean when he says that Christ's love compels us? Now you'll have to forgive me here because I really like to look at the meaning of words, especially Greek words. And I guess it's one of those occupational hazards that we often hear about. It also explains why Greek Scholars are usually the ones sitting by themselves at parties. Um, but the word that Paul uses here in verse 14 is the Greek word syneko. Now I know that you really don't care about that so much, but that's the word that Paul uses. And what is interesting here is that Paul only uses this Greek word twice in all of his letters in the New Testament. And so look at how Paul uses this word here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He starts this passage by saying, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. So we know what it means to fear the Lord, and so we try to persuade men. It strikes me as we look at this word suneko, and in this context, that there always seem to be two sides that Paul is describing when he uses this word. There's a polarity that Paul seems to be hinting at here. On the one side, you have the Lord, and Paul's deep fear, actually his deep reverence for Christ, in light of the fact that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he tells us in verse 10. And then on the other side, there's the persuasion of men and women that he comes into contact with. And so on the one side, Paul talks about there's the Lord and the fear of the Lord, this reverent fear of the Lord. On the other side, there's the persuasion of people that he's trying to, to, to persuade them about what Christ has done for them. In verse 13, then Paul talks about his state of mind. He writes, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of Christ. If we are in our right mind, 
it is for you. Now there are many different ways we can interpret these words here, but we shouldn't miss once again the polarity that we find within these words here. On the one side, there's God. And it's as someone, it is as if someone is saying to Paul, all of this God stuff, all you talk about is God. You're just out of your mind. On the other side is the group of Corinthian believers, and these are people. And it's as they, it, is as if, it is as if they're saying to Paul, come on, Paul, in all this talking, you have to think about us. Be normal. Be in your right mind. Well, it's in the context of this polarity, this tension it would seem, between God and people, between the fear of the Lord and the anxiety of trying to persuade people, that Paul uses his word seneco for the first time. Christ's love, seneco, compels us. Now, before we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 a little bit further, I want to talk to you about the second time, the only other time, that Paul uses this same word, Seneco. The other place Paul uses this word is in his letter to the Philippians. You remember that Paul is writing to his Philippian friends in the first chapter about his present condition. Despite the theme of joy that runs throughout this entire letter, it doesn't take too long for us to realize that things aren't exactly picture perfect for Paul. First of all, Paul is in prison. Now believe me, this is not where Paul wanted to be. It's not where he wanted to be when he's writing this letter to them. Second, it seems that there are a group of people who are somehow preaching Christ just to make things worse for Paul. They're preaching just to make life more difficult for him. Now, I'm not sure, once again, how we need to interpret this, but I'm sure this is not what Paul expected other preachers of Christ to be doing. And then Paul shares with his readers in Philippi that he is actually facing the possibility of a death sentence. And it's in the context of these verses that Paul uses his word, seneco, once again. Paul says, I don't know what's going to happen. I might live, I might die. But either way, I want Christ to be glorified, to be exalted in my body. And then Paul begins to think about life or death. If he had the choice, what would he personally choose? If I were to die, Paul says, this would mean Christ. I'd be with Christ. I'd be in his presence. I'd be united with him. And so on the one side, there's death and there's Christ. But if I were to live, Paul says, this would be an advantage. This would be a gain for other believers. If I were to live, I'd be able to spread the gospel even further. Despite being in prison, Despite having all the opposition, despite all the pain and disappointment, life would mean that I could bring more people to Christ. Living in the body, Paul says, would mean fruitful labor for me. So on the one side then, there's death and Christ. On the other side, there is life, even with its pain and disappointment, but also its gain of bringing more people to Christ. So just like in 2 Corinthians, there's a polarity that is visible here. Paul says, for my part, I desire to depart, to die and be with Christ, which is better by far. But for you, it would be better if I remain in the body. What would I choose? Paul says. And then he uses our word again in verse 23. I do not know. I am torn. Suneco. I'm torn between the two. I'm torn. I'm compelled between these two choices. 
And so this is the way that Paul uses this word compelled in Philippians. So when we return to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what does Paul mean when he says that Christ's love compels us? I guess that's where we started, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe that Paul means that the realization and truth of what Christ has done for us so controls and so determines our lives that we really have no choice. Paul tells us in verse 15 that Christ died for us and was raised again. In the light of this fact, in light of this truth, with the realization of what Christ has done for us, what else can we do but to follow this love? Paul says, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. In order to be spiritually content, I have discovered that I can do nothing else but to follow and to be faithful to that love. Christ's love compels us. But if Christ's love truly compels us, it means there's going to be some major repercussions that take place in our lives. It means we're going to have to make some major choices and decisions. And Paul uses this word syneco, compelled, with this polarity to show us that these decisions that we make in following Christ's compulsive love often means that it'll feel like we're being torn in two. It will tear us apart. Using the same word in Philippians as he does in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains that his compulsion by Christ's love means that his own personal preferences are no longer uppermost. This is so much the case that even death is compelling, should that be Christ's will. But you know what? As difficult as death, death might sound, I'm convinced that there are some times when staying alive and remaining faithful to the call God has placed in our lives is even harder. You know, as most of you know, then, my family and I moved to Holland. We lived there for almost 10 years in order for me to work on my doctorate at the University of Leiden. And believe me, it was a huge decision for us to go there. Um, it wasn't just my wife and I going, but we moved there with three young children, all of them three or younger. Um, our fourth child was born soon after we were in Holland. But we prayed seriously about it. And both Meek and I felt certain that this is what God wanted us to do. I mean, there was a compulsion there. This is what God willed for us to do. When we got to Holland, it seemed like everything went wrong. I mean, everything went wrong. First of all, we couldn't find a house or an apartment to live in. Holland used to be the most densely populated country in the world, and so that shouldn't have been a surprise, but we couldn't find a place to live. And so we ended up living for nine and a half months with my parents-in-law in their small house in Holland. Nine and a half months. Five of us coming into that house with the two of them. It wasn't easy for them. It certainly wasn't easy for us either. Soon after I got to Holland, I met with my supervising professor, the one who was going to lead me through this doctoral study. In our very first meeting together, then we had a conflict and we had an argument. He told me in that meeting that it was a mistake for me to come to Holland. He did not realize I had a family. He said, you should decide whether you want to study or whether you want to have a family. You can't do them both. And we had quite a problem right there. One thing after another fell apart. 
nothing seemed to work. Now I have to be honest with you that during that time I prayed earnestly to God for him to call me back home. God, call me home. I don't mean heaven home, I mean back to the United States home. Get me out of here. <laughs> Although, I didn't feel like I could turn my back on such a strong conviction that led both Mika and me to Holland. And so I prayed and I cried out to God to reverse his call. Send me home. Let me know you want me to go home. God didn't do it. I'm still unhappy about him doing that. He didn't do it. And so after months of fighting and crying to God to change my call, to change what he had called me to do in my life, I finally came to the conclusion that either I was going to disobey God and leave and go home, or as miserable I felt that I had to stay in Holland and to study. It was one of the hardest decisions of my life. For several months I was so miserable I'm sure death would have felt good. I felt like dying. As a matter of fact I often felt like I would rather die than be in that situation. And I think this is exactly what Paul says in Philippians. He would personally even choose death over life if it was his own choice. But he's torn, he's compelled, he's controlled by God's will instead of his own will. So the question we need to ask ourselves is the compelling question. Does Christ's love compel us? Or are we compelled by something else? Are we compelled by our own desires? By our own wishes? By our own preferences? maybe by our own comfort? Or are we compelled by Christ's love? If we are to be the people God is calling us to be, if you are going to be the person God has called you to be, then you will be compelled by God's love. Now I know this sounds all very nice and fine while we're sitting here in a cozy chapel service, but how does this work out in the struggles that we face in our daily lives? How about you? How are you doing now that you've been confronted with the reality of living and working or trying to work in Colorado Springs? Now that you're confronted with the harsh realities and demands of studying at NBC, what's compelling you? Do we feel like we're having to work too hard? Have you dis been disappointed by the amount of work you're having to do at your job or in your classes? I'll bet that for at least 90% of us, if not 100% of us here today, that we are here at this Bible college because we felt compelled by God to come and to study here. It seemed and felt so right for us to do this. But for some of us, maybe even most of us, it's just not turning out the way we planned. It's just not turning out. So what's compelling us? What's the basis of your life? What's the basis of your decisions? The fact of the matter is that as children of the kingdom, you're going to be confronted with, with this question the rest of your life. What if your church is not growing the way you anticipated it to grow? What if the pastor of the church ends up having a different vision than you have? What if your tests and papers that are required at NBC are harder than you expected? What if life in general just doesn't turn out the way you'd counted on? 
what's the basis of your life and your decisions? If we're committed to God, if we're committed to following His will, then Christ's love compels us. Either we're doing His will, being compelled by Christ, or we're not doing His will, which means we're compelled by our own desires, by our own preferences, by our own comfort, or by our own will. There really is no middle ground there. And so who is compelling us to be where we are? That's the hard question that each one of us has to answer. I'll have to admit, it's certainly a difficult question for me to be asking myself. Who is compelling me to be what I am and to be where I am? Sometimes I can feel so torn between what I prefer to have happen and what is actually happening in my life. Sometimes I can feel so torn between what I want to see happen and what God wants to see happening and what God allows to happen in my life. And so who is compelling me? Who is compelling you to be what we are and to be where we are? If it's not Christ and His love compelling us, then we should get out. It's that easy. If it's not Christ compelling us, we should get out. But if Christ's love is compelling you to be where you are, then you can't get out. Hear me, you can't get out. In essence, you have no choice except to be faithful. This was the painful conclusion that I had to come to in Holland with my study. And believe me, it was painful. I hated that decision. That decision is many times not too promising. It's not too enjoyable. But it is the basic fact of the matter. Are we going to remain faithful to God or not? Is God calling us or not? Are we compelled by Christ's love or not? If not, seek to discover God's will and be compelled to go and do the other task He's called you to do. But if God has called you, be faithful. Be faithful. It might not sound so exciting. And most of the time, it's not. It's just flat out not exciting. But when we live a Christ-compelled life, Christ's power makes us equal to the task. It's His power. He does it. Paul says it himself in verse 17 of this chapter. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, and in this sense, I think that in Christ is another way of saying, if anyone is Christ-compelled, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So what about you? Are you being compelled by Christ's love? I'm pretty sure that most of us are here today because we felt compelled at one time or other to be here. We're sure that God had opened doors. We were positive that He had led us to this place, that He had placed this irresistible call upon our life. But what about now? After the reality of the decision has sunk in? For many of us, it's turned out a lot different than what we expected. Maybe not too different from my airplane ride from Kansas City to California. But what about that compulsion we felt? Now we need to come to a close, but I want to send you home with just a few observations about being compelled by Christ's love. First, when you are compelled to do something by Christ's love, it will not always end up how you expect. We have to recognize that. When we are compelled by Christ's love, it's His plan. It's His will. And that often turns out different than what we expect. 
I think Paul could tell us all about that, couldn't he? He's writing while he's in prison when he's writing to the, to the Philippians. Second, when we are compelled to do something by Christ's love, there will be conflict. There will be conflict. Did you realize this? There will be conflict when you act according to Christ's love in your life. Now, I'm afraid that we've been done a great disservice by so much of the health, wealth, and happiness type of preaching and theology we often hear as we talk to other people and, and listen to other Christians. Following Christ does not mean that your path will suddenly be lined with roses. As a matter of fact, if we've understood our word compelled correctly, it means necessarily that there will be a conflict. There is that duality. There is that polarity. There is that conflict when we follow what Christ compels us to do. It means that we'll be torn between the two ends of this polarity. It means we'll face struggles in which we are pulled in two different directions. And so if you are acting according to love of Christ in your life, expect conflict. It is inevitable. It is certain. The conflict does not mean we missed God's call. It means we've been compelled by Christ's love. And don't misunderstand it. Lastly, when you're compelled by Christ's love, God will make you equal to the task. He will make you equal to the task. He will strengthen you and make you to stand. But it won't be your power. It will be His power. You'll not find yourself moving forward by the strength of your own self. You will find yourself moving forward by the strength of your new self, God's new creation, that Christ's love begins within you. Hear the word of the Lord. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. For me, that was the key right there. <laughs> that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compelled him to die for you. And it compelled him to die for me. Will Christ's love compel you to live for him? May it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the compelling love which Christ has placed upon our hearts. And Father, I must confess there's been too many times in my life when I heard the voice of Christ and I felt that compulsion. And I wrongly thought that that meant that everything was going to fall into place and there would be no struggles, there'd be no hardship, there'd be no tension, there'd be no troubles. And yet you've never told us that. What you've told us is that your grace is sufficient. And so, fathers, we find ourselves at the end of a long trimester. As we find ourselves in the midst of struggles that we never anticipated. Sometimes struggles in our finances, sometimes struggles in our work, sometimes struggles in our relationships struggles in class. 
And Father, I'd ask you to remind us that your compelling love is not made the weaker because of those struggles, but I believe it's made all the stronger because it forces us to take you at your word and to recognize that your grace is sufficient and that we do not have the power to follow you on our own, that we do not have the strength. Just to be honest, we're just not smart enough to do it all on our own. But Lord, I thank you that your love and your grace and your presence makes us equal to the task if we'll remain faithful. Father, would you find us faithful? Don't let us run. Don't let us hide. Don't let us be scared away from following the path you've placed before us. But find us faithful to the end, to finish the race, to do what you've called us to do, to be who you've called us to be, and to allow nothing to stop that, to allow your love to be our focusing agent that draws us, that beckons to us, that sometimes drives us, and help us not to settle for anything less. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for Christ who models this for us so well on his journey to the cross and to the glorious victory of his resurrection. And we want to follow after him. And so, Father, we go from this place. We go with that compulsion, recognizing that sometimes it seems to tear us in two, but that you guide us, you lead us, you help us, and you enable us to become more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And we give you thanks. And so we go with your presence. We go with the struggle still, but we go with the promise of your grace and your presence. And we give you thanks through the victorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you.